Our sermon text this morning is Psalm 73, which is printed for you on the back of your order of worship, if you'd like to read along there. Psalm 73 has long been one of my favorite psalms in the Psalter, and I think it's for this reason. It's a pretty unique psalm in that the psalm itself is a kind of narrative. It's a, it's a story. It's a spiritual journey. As the psalmist speaking in the first person experiences a spiritual crisis at the beginning of the psalm, driven by envy, bitterness, and disillusionment, and then through God's grace, moves into a new place of illumination, where he realizes anew the faithfulness of God and testifies to his satisfaction in the person of God alone. It's important to note that although I just said the psalm is a story, it's, an, it's a narrative that is an interior narrative. It's a narrative of the movements of the psalmist's heart and soul. Throughout this psalm, there's no indication that his physical circumstances change. No, they remain the same. But his understanding of God that changes gives him a radically new and different perspective on the same circumstances. May we also, as we study this psalm this morning, as we study God's word together, experience that same kind of heart and soul transformation by the working of the Holy Spirit through his divinely inspired word. With that context in mind, I invite you now, friends, to listen to God's holy and inerrant word. Beloved, this is God's word. It is more precious than gold, more precious than anything in your life, even much fine gold. It is sweeter also than honey, sweeter even than the drippings of the honeycomb. Open your ears and hear it now. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked 
always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked each morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Thus far, the reading of God's word. It is absolutely true, and it is given to you because your Father and heaven loves you. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all the Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us now by your Spirit to hear this portion of your Word and to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest it, that we may even more embrace and hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. One of the secrets of the spiritual life that isn't often discussed is that it is very difficult to grow in your intimacy with God without wrestling with Him. It's very hard to grow in your intimacy with the God without wrestling with Him. I think the reason for this is that all of us experience tension and dissonance in our life with God. None of us, I promise you, friend, really, none of us have some kind of easy life in this world where there's no suffering, no doubts, no problems, no lack of faith or joy or peace. 
The people around you do not experience that. You do not experience that. I don't experience that. None of us do. And fundamentally, to wrestle with God is to be honest with Him about that reality. To be honest with Him, to be transparent about all the places where we actually doubt, where we actually have questions, where we actually wonder what in the world is it that God is doing. And it is as we are honest with God in our wrestling, as we dare to ask Him our most difficult questions, that we discover, not easily, not quickly, slowly, over time, we discover what it truly means to be intimate with Him, to know Him. And for him to know us. The Protestant reformer John Calvin, who lived in the 16th century, he said this in a quote that has always struck me. He said, God's sovereignty over all things means that in the end, it is always God that we must do business with. God's sovereignty over all things means in the end, it is always God that we must do business with. What Calvin meant is this, God's sovereignty means that in the end, the circumstances in which you find yourself is because God has put you in those circumstances. God has ordained those circumstances for you. And so if you're going to wrestle with someone, when you get down to it, God is the one that you have to wrestle with. There's no way around him. The kind of spiritual wrestling that I'm describing is all over the pages of the scriptures. Jacob, of course, engages in this kind of wrestling with God. David does as well. Job does. Abraham does. Paul does. And so on and on. Friends, it's not the people who lack faith who experience dark nights of the soul. It's the people who are pressing in, who are seeking to grow in their faith, who experience these things. And our psalm this morning gives us a profound picture of what it means to experience a spiritual crisis and come out into a new place through the grace and mercy of God, a new place of intimacy and knowledge of God. Psalm 73 begins in verse 1 with this striking statement of confidence in God's character. Right? The psalmist begins and says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Truly God is good. God is good to Israel, the psalmist begins by saying. That is, God is good to all of his people, all down through the centuries, even to you and me today. And he adds, God is good to the pure in heart. Now, to be pure in heart is not primarily about moral cleanliness. It's about the purity of our affections, the purity of our desires, whether or not they are single-minded, so to speak, whether or not they are wholly set on God. To be pure of heart, as Kierkegaard said, is to will one thing, to love God alone. God is good, the psalmist says, 
to those who long for him, who desire after him, who set their hearts on him above all else. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That's how this psalm begins. And remember those words because it is about to get bumpy. In verse 2, the psalm begins to speak, the psalmist rather begins to speak about his own experience. Now he can affirm, he just did affirm, that God is good to his people as a kind of general statement. But when it comes to his own personal experience, well, the psalmist has some doubts. And this makes sense, right? We know what this is like. It is very easy to affirm in the abstract the goodness of God. It is quite another thing to believe that God is good in the details of my life, that he has been good all throughout my experience, that he is good to me. And that that tension is exactly what is happening in the psalm. After the psalmist says, truly God is good, he then says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. A paraphrase in modern English might might put it this way, I was just barely hanging on. I was clinging to the cliff edge for dear life. And why? What was provoking this crisis for the psalmist? He says, for I was envious of the arrogant. When I saw the prosperity, when I saw the shalom of the wicked. The word that the ESV translates here as prosperity is actually the Hebrew word shalom. It's the gift of prospering and peace and flourishing that God promises to his people. But here the psalmist says that his feet had almost stumbled because he had become envious when he saw the apparent shalom, the apparent peace, the apparent flourishing of others and of particularly of the wicked. Now that little word envious is so important, right? He became envious of what others had that he did not feel that he possessed, but he should have in his mind. It's not for nothing, friends, that the Tenth Commandment prohibits covetousness and envy. It's not just because God wants to keep us in our place. It's because it's for our own good that God does this, right? That he takes enviousness so seriously. Because there's nothing that kills contentment and peace and joy more quickly than envy. Coveting what others possess or seem to possess. Envy is perhaps the most insidious sin there is because it is so easy to fall into, so easy to justify. Why shouldn't I want what that person has, we might think. It's just not fair that they have it and I don't or they seem to have it. I mean, envy is just built on so many illusions. Often the thing that we are envying that another person has, we think, is not even something that they possess. We envy them their confidence and their happiness and their their success, and they would say, well, look at my life. It's not that happy. It's not that successful. 
I'm not confident at all. There's so much, friends, that we could envy. Someone's looks, someone's success, someone's spouse, someone's possessions, on and on. And to top it all off, envy leads so quickly to self-deceit, to deceiving ourselves about what other people have so that we might envy it more. Listen to the words of the psalmist in verses 4 and 5 as he describes the people who he envies. Listen to this kind of idealized portrait of who they are. He says, they have no pangs until death. They don't have problems. No unmet desires. Their bodies are fat and sleek. He doesn't mean they're obese here. He means they have plenty to eat. They're doing great. They don't have any troubles. They're not in trouble as others are, he says. They don't have any problems like other people do. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind, right? They're the exception to the rule. Their lives prove how terrible everyone else's is. What strikes me about this description that the psalmist gives is how naive and how baseless it is, right? It's not rooted in reality. These wicked and arrogant people that the psalmist envies, I don't care who they are, I don't care how successful and happy they seem, they live in a fallen world just as the psalmist does. And because they live in this fallen world, they are no more immune to the difficulties and troubles of life than anyone else. But in his envy, the psalmist has given himself over to a kind of delusion, right? It's the kind of delusion that imagines, as people do sometimes still in our culture somehow, that if you are wealthy and famous, you have a perfect life and everything's just perfect and fine and great, right? In his envy, the psalmist has given himself over to that kind of delusion. These rivals whom he envies don't have any troubles. All their needs are met. They're perfectly happy. They don't have any unsatisfied desires. They're not stricken by the suffering that comes from life in this world, just like everyone else experiences. Now, none of this is actually true in terms of a true indication of how people are. But that's how envy works. It convinces us, as we give in to it, that other people have what we don't have, that other people have perfect, trouble-free lives. And if only we could have what they have, our life would be perfect and without trouble as well. The delusion of the psalmist continues in verses 12 and 13. He says, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. Don't even have to lift a finger. And yet they increase in their riches. And then it turns bitter. He says, all, and this is not true as well, right? This is also a delusion, but it's now pointed toward himself. He says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. You see, the trouble with envy is that it eats us up from the inside. It's like a parasite on our soul that consumes us. Now the psalmist has become embittered, not just about his circumstances, but against God himself. What is the point, he begins to say, of my faithfulness? 
What's the use of all the good that I've done, all my righteous deeds? It seems that the psalmist has fallen into a kind of transactional relationship with God. He says, I've done all the things I was supposed to do. And if God was actually good, he would have taken care of me. He would have given me the same things that he gave to all those other people. Especially the wicked who are always at ease and don't have any problems at all. Now, if you've ever had these kind of arguments with God, and I think most of us have to some extent, you can recognize the logic, right? There's a kind of logic there. But the trouble is, this is a fundamentally immature way, immature way to relate to God. There's a, there's a lack of real intimacy here. The psalmist at this point in the psalm isn't loving God for God's sake. He isn't loving God for God as he is. He just wants God as a means to give him the things that he desires. He's caught in a kind of spiritual death spiral at this point. His envy of others has now begun to consume himself and bitter himself against God. So what can he do? He can't deliver himself. The psalmist can't reason himself out of this trap. If you've been in this place before, you know this. You know how useless it is to try to free yourself. You need God to deliver you. And that's what just what God does in this psalm. But how does God's deliverance come for the psalmist? It comes in verse 17. And it comes through the simplest thing of all the public worship of the people of God. In verses 16 and 17, the psalmist writes, he says, But when I thought how to understand this, right, all these things, it seemed to me a wearisome task until this, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Now, we don't know exactly how the Spirit spoke to the psalmist. Maybe it was through the public reading of God's Word. Maybe it was the instruction given by the Levitical priest about what God's Word meant. Maybe it was while he was singing one of the great psalms with the people. But however it happened, it was in the sanctuary of God, assembled and worshipped, that the psalmist's delusion was finally broken. And beloved, I just want to say by way of application that what is true for the psalmist is true for us as well. When you are in the midst of a spiritual darkness, it is so easy, it is so tempting to isolate yourself, right? To pull away from the church, from Christian community, from public worship. But what you need, friend, in that place, what you need is not, it is not an echo chamber of your own thoughts and doubts and concerns. What you need is for something outside of you to break in to the darkness that you're trapped inside. And God has promised to do that for you and no place else more clearly than in the public worship of his people gathered on the Lord's day. This is where God, above all other places, has promised to speak. In any case, the psalmist now understands. It's like the scales have fallen from his eyes, right? 
Suddenly he rises. There's no reason for any of this. There's no reason for him to envy the wicked. They're like a dream. Their place isn't secure. God will judge them. And then in verses 21 and 22, he reflects on his experience. He says, when my soul was embittered, right? He's reflecting back to the earlier parts of the psalm. He says to God, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you, O God. I was like a child demanding justice when I didn't even understand the meaning of the term. But notice what he says about how God treated him in that place. He says in verses 23 and 24, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. What the psalmist is saying is that he had turned against God, but God would not turn against him. Even when the psalmist was convinced that God had abandoned him, he now realizes that God in that very place was continually with him. That God was still holding to him, holding tight, refusing to let go, refusing to let him drown in his envy and bitterness and foolishness. Beloved, this is what God's grace looks like. Even when we push him away, even when we fall into the ditch, even when we are convinced that we don't want him, there he is, pursuing, following, saving. God is big enough, friends, for your doubts and your questions and your concerns. He is big enough for you to be honest with him. And that leads to the psalmist making this remarkable statement of faith and contentment in the end of the psalm, in verses 25 through 28. Listen to these words, beloved. This is how, at the end of all of this turmoil, the psalmist now speaks of God. He says to God, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing. I mean, think about that statement. Nothing. His whole heart has been consumed by other desires for most of the psalm. And now he says, and there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What does the psalmist get? What is his portion? God is his portion. Friends, this is the true movement of the spiritual life. We begin with this simple faith, and then in the tension and difficulty of this fallen world, our faith is tested and tried, and things finally, over time, come to a head in a crisis. And if we were left on our own in that place, we would be lost. But God's grace, God's presence, God's kindness brings us through into a new place of intimacy with him. 
I mean, listen to what the psalmist is saying here. Right before, he was so envious of others because their lives seemed perfect, better than his at least. But now he says to God, whom have I in heaven but you? And in fact, there is nothing I want. There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Remember where this psalm began. It began with envy and bitterness and disillusionment. And it ends with satisfaction. Not because his circumstances have changed. No satisfaction with God alone. This connection is so important to see. Beloved, you will never put to death the envy and restlessness and unhappiness that remains in your life and your heart merely through trying to say more and more loudly no to those desires. That is, I promise you, not how it works. It is not. It is only as you learn to say yes to something else. Yes to the overwhelming beauty and attraction and glory of God that your desire for other things will diminish. It is only as your desire is inflamed for Him and for Him alone that you will learn what it means to be truly happy, truly at peace, truly content. To say with the Apostle Paul, I lack for nothing, nothing. Beloved, this is the end to which we are being drawn as we journey through our life with God. This is what the Christian life is about. Slowly, he strips away everything from us. Every false desire, every self-delusion, every little bit of pride that we cling to until in the end we realize God actually is the reward. God himself is the thing that I get. And that's such good news. Beloved, do you remember what it is that our Lord Jesus, almost certainly meditating on this psalm, promises in his Sermon on the Mount to the pure in heart? What does he promise to the pure in heart? What is the ironclad promise that our Lord Jesus gives to those who are pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, Jesus says, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall receive what they long for. Remember, to be pure in heart is to desire one thing. And the promise of the gospel is that the pure in heart will receive the desire of their heart. Beloved, what God gives in the end is simply God himself. That's what he promises. And the great test of the spiritual life is to be satisfied, to be content, to realize How could I not be content with that gift, with the gift of God himself? 
And to say gladly with the psalmist, right? Not begrudgingly, but gladly with the psalmist. To say with him to the God whom you love with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire, God, besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. And he is my portion forever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, grant us the grace now to wrestle with the words of of this psalm. By your Spirit, Father. May this portion of your word sink deeply into our hearts and transform our affections that we might truly be pure in heart and know your goodness. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.